they said, well, as long as we are able to keep the conviction, we will allow Mr. Lomax to go home today. So you go think my family members, my children, grandchildren, everybody's here. I've been in prison almost 40 years. You know, what do you, what do you do? This is Legacy, stories from older generations for insight into the world today. I'm Michelle Harvin. Prison reform is one of those issues many people can agree on, which is weird today. From the Koch brothers to Mark Zuckerberg, there is a genuine realization that something has got to give. One national poll from 2016 found that more than 80 percent of Americans support reforms that would reduce prison terms. One of the big reasons for this odd moment of unity is because of cost. Housing and feeding so many prisoners is expensive, $80 billion a year expensive. And that's because currently, the United States incarcerates more people than anywhere in the world, with more than 2.2 million people in prisons and jails. But the conversation of how we got here is inextricable with race. African Americans are incarcerated at more than five times the rate of white people. And even though people of color only make up around 30% of the nation's population, they account for nearly 60% of those in prison. So it may not be an outrageous statement to say America has a broken system on its hands. But how do you take on an institution that has the weight of history propelling it forward? Yeah. My name is Walter Lomax, L-O-M-A-X. And I just turned 70 October the 31st. One December morning in 1967, a police officer went to Walter's family home with an arrest warrant. That warrant would be the start of a long, torturous journey. Walter was on probation at the time, and so had been keeping out of trouble. He called up his probation officer to escort him to the station and figure out the confusion. But the confusion only gets worse. Somehow, Walter is placed in a lineup that has nothing to do with the warrant. And I was identified as the person that had committed the crime. And so they held me. But unbeknownst to me, and really I only found this out like many years later, is that the warrant was never for my arrest. It was for my brother's arrest, for child support. But because I went to the police station and then they placed me in this lineup, and I was picked out in this lineup, I became this victim of misidentification. To be clear about this series of events, because it's so extraordinarily ill-fated, a police officer goes to the Lomax's house. They say there's a warrant for Walter, but it's actually for his brother for not paying child support. Walter goes to the station voluntarily, gets placed in a lineup for a completely unrelated crime, and is picked out as the perpetrator. That lineup was for a robbery and murder, one of many during an especially violent month in the city of Baltimore. Because of this, police stations took to instrumenting mass lineups, a practice which proved ineffective. When you were in the lineup, did they ever, did, what was going through your head 
where you're like, what was this even for? They don't tell you what you're in a lineup for. Right? Uh, I don't even know whether I processed that at the time. I think that I'm just assuming that because they had a warrant for my arrest, they had arrested me, I was in the holding area, and then they just moved me from the holding area to downtown to, to a lineup. I'm thinking that that's normal police procedures. However, Walter's reality would soon come crashing down around him. I was sent to what's called the detention center, and a couple of weeks after that, I received some formal indictments. This is when I realized that not only was I charged for this one particular crime, but I was charged with a series of crimes. And I was very naive at the time, I'll be quite honest with you. It might seem a little silly today, or really even asinine that I think about it. I literally thought that they will find the person that did this, and I'm going to be gone. I never in my wildest imagination thought that I would actually be convicted of these crimes. Walter had gotten into a fight the night before his arrest and fractured his hand, along with sustaining some other injuries. Years later, this would actually be his saving grace. I did have enough sense to know at the time that it was impossible for me to have used a weapon with the hand that they alleged that the uh, perpetrator committed the crime with. And in fact, I could barely walk. My ribs had been injured. My, both of my knees were scarred up. My head had been busted. The gentleman that was sent to represent me, in fact, he, when he first visited me for the first attorney visit, he noticed the extent of the injury. He recommended to the institution that I be transported to the hospital in order to get the hand treated because it was obvious that it was still quite swollen. But when he looked at the case and the timing, automatically realized that I couldn't have committed the crime. In fact, he stated that this was the one case that haunted him the most because he knew that there was an innocent man that was in prison. But even with the obvious injury, Walter was still charged with murder. I was originally charged with three murders. I was only uh, tried and convicted for, for one. I concluded that the reason why they never tried to try me for the other murders, they dropped those charges, is because during the trial, when it was realized the severity of my hand injury, that it would have been impossible for me to have committed the other crimes. And they were so bent on getting a conviction from what they had originally charged me with, they proceeded on with it. 1967 was a year of racial tensions in many cities across America. During the summer, more than 150 cities and towns saw riots, fire bombings, and violent confrontations with the police. And the next year only got worse. On April 4, 1968, Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated. Cities all over reacted to the news. In Baltimore, Riots lasted for more than a week. When I was arrested, this was during the height of all of these movements taking form around the country. That set the backdrop for the trial. Walter suddenly finds himself trapped in something very reminiscent of a Kafka novel. It's steeped in bureaucracy, makes little sense 
And all the while, there's an overwhelming feeling of helplessness to the powers that be. I was still thinking that they'll look at the circumstances here and I'm, I'm going to go home. And then I was thinking, too, that they will find the person that committed the crime and then I'll go home. And so it was sort of like a surreal experience for me because I watched the proceeding and I heard them talking about me. But I knew that I wasn't the person that they was really talking about. And so when the jury came back with a guilty verdict, I, I acknowledged that that was the verdict. But I still was under this naive impression that they're going to find out who did these communities. Because I'm thinking that no one just does that and then just stop. That they will continue to do it and they, they will catch them and then, you know, I'll go out. But that didn't happen. And Walter was sentenced to life in prison. A key factor to my sanity today is that I may have physically went in prison but I would never allow them to take my humanity away from me. And that was part of a lot of my problems in prison is because I always demanded respect. And whenever I did not get it, then I eventually wound up on segregation simply because I absolutely refused to be disrespected. I can see this in Walter today. He has an easy air of confidence. The real sort of confidence, not the overcompensating kind. A characteristic which did not bode well for him in prison. When he was placed in solitary confinement. The correctional officer had given me, they were called jumpsuits to put on, and it was too small. And I asked him, could he give me a jumpsuit that fits? He didn't say anything, just wait for me to get ready to go. And so... I couldn't put it on the top. I had a T-shirt on or a sweat or something. That tied away on my waist. I went to the cell. Well, the first thing that I noticed was the noise. Everybody was hollering and screaming like at the top of their voice. It was just nerve-wracking. But when I got to the cell, and it was so filthy that I looked at it, and I asked him, I said, uh, and could I, I get something to uh, clean the cell out? And he was really big dude. He gave me that same look that he gave me when we were downstairs. And, you know, it was indicating, like, step in the cell. And I stepped in the cell, and he slammed that damn door and looked at me and said he thought I was crazy. And I think it was just unusual for a person to uh, be asking for the things that I was asking for. Even through the cruelty of isolation, being there focused Walter. He was a high school dropout and barely literate. And so there were a lot of words that I didn't understand. And so they had a, a thing in segregation that, man, make sure that Lomax get the book last. Don't put him on the front line to read the book when anything, because, you know, literature would come through, whatever. When it got to me, I used to have... Uh, a highlight or a marker, and I would mark the words that after I finished reading the chapter, I'd go back and write all those words, and then I'd look them up and find yeah. out what they mean, and then go back and read the sentence again. And so every time someone got a book that it came through me, it was like, 
damn no, Maxie, I just booked it. <laughs> so, but anyway, what it what it allowed me to do, it allowed me to start to understand the process a lot more, understanding the sentences, the structure, the paragraphs, and then eventually began to understand the book. And I would always make sure that the novels or the books that I would get had a whole lot of pages to them, five or six hundred pages. He taught himself reading comprehension and vocabulary. It took him about 10 years, but he got his GED. And then he studied at a college level, eventually earning a couple degrees. But around this time, into his incarceration... I realized that they weren't looking for the person that committed these crimes. And that the only way I was going to get out of prison is that I had to get myself out of prison. Mindful. I didn't know any politicians. I didn't know anyone that was famous. My family didn't have any money. So I was pretty much on my own as far as needing to do what I needed to do in order to get myself out of prison. And that's when I began to laser focus on doing just that. Walter used his expanding education to begin studying some of the most dense and complicated texts we have today, the law. He knew he had to start building a case for his innocence. How can you prove it? You know, you can't just make a bold allegation. You didn't do it. So how do you prove that you didn't do it? So that was a difficult task in the beginning. So the task became, well, if I can't right now prove that I didn't do it, right, then what I need to do is prove that what happened to me was illegal. Walter worked on his own for a couple years. Then, in the mid-90s, he finally got a break. Centurion Ministries, a nonprofit which looks into wrongful convictions, decided to take on Walter's case. But he also had to counter an emotional conviction. When it comes to the concept of innocence and guilt, court sentencing is clear. But in society, guilt can be a gray issue. There are still some people that harbor the notion that, okay, he maybe did not do it because there's a lot of indication that he didn't, but he must have known who did. So it's difficult for them to fathom that someone can be actually innocent and know absolutely nothing about a crime that they've been arrested and convicted for. It's just the way some people think. Even the people that come to believe that I'm innocent, still had the perception, well, how did they get to arrest him anyway? How did, you know, he wound up in that position? He must have done something. That's the perception. And in a case about murder, emotions run high. Walter felt for the victim's family and what they would have to go through if he was found innocent because they were so much a part of trying to keep me in prison for all of those years. And now to be confronted with the fact that I may not be the person who committed that crime, then they have to deal with uh, their justification for keeping me there. And so what this does, it, it doesn't bring them closure for the loss of their family member. And so to feel that, well, he was the only person that was ever identified. So that's what we're going with. And that's that's a sad commentary because 
I know what it feels like to lose a loved one. My younger brother was murdered in Baltimore in 82. And one of my grandsons was murdered in uh, Baltimore in 2006, the year I was released, actually. And I watched my family go through the grieving of my younger brother. In fact, even today, when you mention his name, some of them still get emotional, welled up about that. It's just a horrible and tragic uh, thing to deal with. Some of my grandchildren and my son still can't deal with that loss. They've had to deal with a lot of uh, emotional, psychological trauma because of uh, my grandson being murdered. And so it's just like it happened just yesterday for them. They may or may not ever get over it. Certainly they haven't had the counseling and went through the therapy that they would need to at least be able to manage that. So I know what it's like to lose a loved one. And so I can only imagine what the victim's family feels like. And then to be confronted with this, it's, it would have to be difficult. With help from his new lawyers, they took their petition for a post-conviction trial. And remember that hand injury? They presented further evidence that Walter would have had difficulty committing the crime because the day before the murder, Walter had a plaster put on from his fingers to his elbow. It went before Judge Gail Raisin, who took great interest in the case. There was something in her that looked at that sequence of events that allowed her to believe early on that I was innocent. Judge Raisin ruled there was overwhelming evidence not presented at his original trial and decided to commute the sentence to time served, suspending the lifetime conviction. By then, Walter had been in prison nearly four decades. But the state wanted to keep the conviction on Walter's record. They said, well... As long as we are able to keep the conviction, we will allow Mr. Lomax to go home today. So you go figure. My family members, children, grandchildren, everybody's here. I've been in prison almost 40 years. You know, what do you, what do you do? Remember, I lost both my parents. My mother and my father passed away. Some of my family members said that my mother died of a broken heart. My father died from medical complications. But nonetheless, I'd, I'd lost, you know, my, my, my family. And my children had grown up. They had children. And their children began to have children. And so what do I do? Do I said, I go back and let it go through the appellate processes? Or do I just walk out the door and sweep? And so I took the deal. Walter was an exceptional prisoner. He had a clean record. He took up poetry. He tutored other inmates and was the editor of the prison's magazine. But even with these factors and the evidence presented in court, Judge Raisin still took heat for her decision. Her colleagues gave her a tough time when she released me. They felt that it was a bad decision. Yeah, she took some slack quite a bit when, when I was released. 
And even when initially it was three years unsupervised probation, but within five months, she brought me back before the court and suspended the other portions of the probation. Then in 2014, Walter went back to court to fight the convictions left on his record and was exonerated of the crimes entirely. So trust me, they must didn't know about me. <laughs> and Judge Raisin stands by Walter today. Every anniversary, we will have dinner with her friend, the lady that wrote a, a strong letter in support for my, my release. She was the uh, chair of the uh, English department at Towson State University. And their friends, we will have dinner to celebrate the anniversary, in fact. Uh, of your back, release? Yeah. Uh, just past uh, December, we done uh, the 10-year anniversary. It, it was really great. That's Walter amazing. picks up a book from the table between us. It's a photo album with pictures of the dinner over the years. Yeah, we work with, yes, sir. Yes, sir. Wow. And so the pictures show all of them smiling broadly. It is a celebration. There's even a cake, which has never give up, never give in, written in icing, a saying Walter has adopted over the years. All of these people whose lives crossed during a tragic moment They've turned into something meaningful, something which Walter has done time and time again throughout his life. While in prison, he used his knowledge not just to help himself, but other prisoners as well. People on the inside was not politically astute at all, nor were a lot of their family members and friends. And so what we done was we found out what legislative district they resided in. And then we had their family members and friends who were registered to vote to contact those legislators what we was creating was called a proxy vote initiative. And what that meant was that even though we could not vote, our family members and friends could vote for the candidate that supports our issue. So that was our proxy vote initiative. And we used that as leverage for things that was occurring inside the institution because you have someone on the outside that will look at what your problem may be. And it began to empower younger people more so. Now, on the outside, he continues to do that, but from a better vantage point. Walter kept at it for so long, he eventually put a name to it and created the Maryland Restorative Justice Initiative, an organization where he advocates for policy changes and for individuals serving long-term sentences. I met him at the office, a criminal justice intern at the front desk. It's small, but packs a punch. The walls are adorned with people he's inspired by. Martin Luther King Jr., Malcolm X, the Obamas. You can tell this is the office of someone who cares deeply about what they're doing. Yeah, I, I, I strongly believe in destiny. Had I not had that experience, I could never be able to do the work that I'm doing here today. Maybe I had to have that experience in order to learn firsthand what needed to be done with the criminal justice system. I always knew that I was going to get out of prison. I just didn't know when and I didn't know how. But somehow, I began to realize that I was there for a purpose. You, you couldn't feel in your heart what I feel after having that experience. And believe me, it was a horrible and tragic experience. No one, I, I wish that on no one, but after having it, 
it allowed me to come out and do what I'm doing based on what I learned when I was in there. And I began to realize that this was something that was destined to happen. I couldn't see the focus at the time because I was dealing with the experience that was occurring to me. I think we all are born with a destiny. And only time the angels hold that breath is when we exercise our free will. And so everything that I learned while I was in prison and what I've learned since I've been released, I think that was still really a part of my true destiny because why couldn't I be sitting in Florida? My brother owns a, a, a lot of property there, man. He's rich. I could just be sitting down there, getting up every morning when I want to, doing what I want to do. But yet I'm up here in the city, you know, on this grind, on this hustle, you know, trying to make a difference. From barely literate to becoming a player within the justice system, Walter has known the law from many levels, not just what it was meant to do or how politicians see it. He's lived through it, which gives him a particularly clear view of its problems, racism being a big part of that. What you went through, how much of it do you think was racism? How much of it do you think was problem with the justice system? They're connected. We could use some chapters from Michelle Alexander's The New Jim Crow and show the parallel between what happened following slavery, what happened during Jim Crow, what happened during sharecropping, and even to what is happening today. When looking at race in prisons, it's hard to ignore what has been described as a modern form of slavery, especially as the industry moves towards privatization. Many point toward the 13th Amendment as a way to legally perpetuate a racial caste system. It abolished slavery, except for criminals. That was serving the same purpose as slavery was before it. Now it's being more or less done from a profit margin. Because the more and more people that you have incarcerated, the more money that's being made. But because so much money has been and is being made on locking more and more people up and keeping them locked up for longest periods of time, it has become a business now that it, it just makes sense mm-hmm. to keep people incarcerated. Walter says one way to shift prisons away from simply being holding centers is to implement what he calls humane sentencing. Don't just assembly line, just meeting out justice, but do it fairly, do it equally. What I think that means is that when an individual is charged or tried, sentenced, I think that it, it, it should move beyond the point of like what the law dictates it should be. Because until or unless you know the circumstances of a person's involvement, in any particular crime, you won't be in a good position to assess what the appropriate treatment would be because there may be so many mitigating circumstances that led up to that. But if you are just shackled with, well, you committed this type of crime, the law says that uh, this is the type of sentence that you must receive, and that's it in keeping this process moving 
forward. But when you assess what led to that particular type of behavior, then you can assess better what type of treatment to issue out. It may be surprising to know that this doesn't already happen within our courts. We have trials to hear circumstance and the full story. But the sentencing doesn't always take those factors into account. Walter emphasizes the need to carry this humane treatment into the prisons as well. How I was able to survive in prison as well as to earn the respect from prison officials as well as the residents. Yeah, I call them residents, but they prisons. I dealt with and treated everybody based on exactly how they presented themselves to me. One of my, my not problems, but that caused me problems is that when I talk to people, I look them dead in the eyes. I talk to them straight. I don't, you know, I, I give them the real person. And officials did not appreciate that. They were accustomed to either people dropping their head or not looking at them, but not talking to them as another human being. And But because I had the ability to do that and always did, I was able to garner the respect because people knew that I wasn't trying to run some kind of game on them. They knew that I was that what I was saying to them was exactly what needed to be said at that particular time. And when you do things from that level, people begin to treat you in kind. And people are able to move through the system with that level of understanding. And so that even though they may have committed a crime to be in prison, I'm not saying that, you know, folk did or whether they didn't or not. But if they move through it as such, their chances of reacclimating back into society is a hell of a lot greater if they are disrespected and treated unkindly. When they are released, they're going to be released with an attitude. Walter has become a mentor to many, to the younger prisoners who nicknamed him Mandela, to recently released prisoners who also served long sentences, and to future generations. When I do presentations at at the universities, and I tell basically what I'm saying there is that information is, is very important and how you process it is as well. What I've learned as an adult is that I can only make decisions if I have the information to make them with. If I don't have good information, chances are I'm not going to make good decisions. And so the more information you get about any particular situation, the better you're in a position to make decisions. And just take the time. You know, life is such a beautiful experience, but that's only if you allow yourself to live it. If you are constantly bombarded by the dictates of the environment that you find yourself in and don't have any type of control of it, chances are you're going to just go with the ebb and flow. But if you establish early on control over the things that you do, the things, the choices that you make, you'll find that the more you know, it's kind of cliche, the further you go. That's what you need to do in your life, you know. You need to concentrate, you know, because if you don't know something, it does not make you dumb. It just means that you don't know it. But once you know it, you can say, wow, I got that. (laughs) 
Legacy is produced by me, Michelle Harvin. A note that we are at the end of the series. If you enjoyed the series, and I hope you did, feel free to give it a rating on iTunes. To listen to all the past episodes, visit our awesome website, LegacyThePodcast.com. Creating Legacy has been a pleasure and also incredibly hard work, which I could not have done without the help of so many people. Elise Harvin, of course, for the logo, Chris Herbert for the website, photo editing, and a ton more. I'd also like to thank Amanda Gomez, Meredith Lee, Hannah Grabenstein, Allison Thowett, Nicole Chung, and Ellis Kim for being like a small staff of amazingly smart people I could rely on. Thanks for listening.